0: Investing in your business can be a wonderful way to grow wealth and live the life you want. That's what I'm doing. But investing in someone else's business can be even better. In my opinion, this is the best way to generate true passive income streams. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including the Global Cashflow Kings ETF, ticker symbol C. FLO, which lets you invest in 200 companies with high levels of free cash flow, such as Visa and Costco, in one ETF. You can learn more about CFLO and the BetaShares fund range by visiting betashares.com.au. Read the PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer.
1: Welcome to the Australian Business Podcast. I'm Daniel Golubev.
0: I'm Jordan Kittis. I'm Owen Rask. We're here to help you make more profit, find work-life balance, save time, capital, and grow your business.
1: Every week, we drop the best tax
0: tips, marketing hacks, growth strategies, and methods to help you grow. If you haven't already, take the free Rask Business Course. Book a chat with me or Daniel at Grayspace. Or get in contact with us about business coaching. We also love hearing from you. So send us your questions and feedback using the resources found in the podcast player for each episode. Let's get into it. Navar, thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast, mate.
1: Yeah, no problem at all.
0: We uh, we caught up for breakfast this morning with Jason from Stocklight, just so happened to be doing a podcast on the same day. And it's also the, the day that you announced a change to your business in terms of the products you offer, which is probably an interesting thing to talk about in itself. Absolutely. Um, but for folks who aren't familiar with the Navexa story, can you give us your elevator pitch? Like if you run into someone that you haven't seen in ages, they say, hey, Navar, what are you working on these days? What would you say?
1: Yeah, it's a good one. And and I think my elevator pitch has changed quite a few times over the years. But I think the simplest way to explain it is that when you're investing in stocks, there's so many different aspects that come into play, whether you've got capital gains or dividends or you're invested in the US markets and there's, currency fluctuations, all that data is hard to find in your brokerage account. So I built a product that helps you see all of those performance metrics, and visualise them really clearly. So you know, at any time, how your portfolio is performing, and more importantly, why it's performing in the way that it is. So you can see that, oh, there's been a huge currency shift in the US markets. That's why I've had suddenly a big spike in um, return or a, or a dip in return, it wasn't actually my investing choices that caused the problem. It was something out of my hands. And similarly with dividends and that kind of thing. So that's kind of the really short pitch of what the product does. Mm-hmm. There's also a whole aspect of um, tax reporting that Novexa does, which is a, a topic in a product almost in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's the general gist of of what I'm
0: doing. So. You've built this platform and it comes with an app and things like that, that if you're investing in the share market or you're investing in ETFs or exchange-traded funds, basically if you have like a ComSec account, a Perler account, a self-wealth account, stake, whatever, or cryptocurrencies for that matter. That's right. You can use Nivexa as kind of like the tracking tool to see how you're performing, see if you've received any income or dividends. And then you can spit out a tax report that then you can use to do your tax return.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: Yep, cool. And you sell that through a subscription.
1: Yeah, that's right. And the reason it's a subscription, that's kind of an interesting topic in itself because the tax part of it, um, people have suggested to me that it shouldn't be a subscription model because you do your tax once a year. So why you don't pay your accountant a subscription. Whereas my argument is, well, you kind of do pay your account into a subscription. It's just not called a subscription. You still file your taxes every year and pay the fee. Whereas the tracking part of the product is something that an investor uses all throughout the year. So if you're um, super into checking prices, you might be logging in every day or multiple times a day. Or if you're somebody like me I log in maybe once a month or so to check my performance, just see how things are going because mm. I'm more of a, a long term view investor. I don't need to know what's happening this month versus last month to kind of make any rash decisions. But um, the subscription model works well for that as it's like a, a product you use all the time.
0: So you. You came to this problem, my understanding is because you were investing and you're a software developer, software engineer by background. Yep. And you were investing, you're interested in the share market, you're interested in growing your net wealth. And um, you realize that when you open a brokerage account, this there's only get like the most basic information in a typical brokerage account. Like you get like the value of your shares today, how much it's gone up like over time but you don't know like your true tax position. So why did you, th- is that like, tell me if I got that right. And then tell me like, how did you go about solving that or just even thinking that this was a problem and you could solve it?
1: Yeah, so if, I've got this classic story that that illustrates why I started an in, in the first place. So back when I was 22 and I'm 35 now for reference, hmm. I started investing because I'd heard of this guy Um, called Warren Buffett, you may have heard of him. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was pretty impressive. He had gone from kind of just a a normal dude with a normal amount of money and was able to create this huge empire essentially um, just through investing. So I started out buying some stocks and one of those particular stocks was uh, National Australia Bank because I happened to be working there at the time. (laughs) I thought, you know, it's a blue chip, I'll just, I'll buy some of that and it'll surely go up over the next few years. So three years later, my NAB shares had essentially gone absolutely nowhere. So the price was exactly the same as when I bought it. Logged into Comsec, it was set as up like 0.3% or something. Whereas I had a couple of other stocks at that time that had gone up by 18%. And Hmm. that sounded a lot better to me. So I was like, I should probably sell these NAB shares and and buy something else. But before I clicked sell, I remembered that these particular shares uh, were paying me dividends over the last few years. And I thought, I'll go and add up all the dividends and see what that is. Hmm. So I got my transaction list. I added up all the dividends. And I was super surprised because I'd actually earned quite a bit of money from owning this stock. And it was in that moment where I realized, oh, it's not just about capital gain. It's about total performance. And for whatever reason, for those few years of investing, I just completely not understood that concept. So I added that up, realized they were worth keeping. And that was the moment where I was like, I could build a tool that that works this out for me automatically and that can calculate all this and hopefully Something that can help other people not to make the mistake that I was about to make. So that was kind of the prime example, and I've had countless examples since then of things I bought. The price hasn't moved much, but the dividends have been really strong. Or things like you buy a U.S. stock and it's going down, but actually because of the currency movement, you've you're in the green. So it's um. That's kind of all the different factors of investing that, that led me to build Novexa. Hmm.
0: So what was the first step then when you decided you wanted to build Novexa to help people track their portfolios or at least just yourself? What What did you do to make those first steps to identify what the scale of the problem is, how you might even attack it in any way? Well, initially,
1: I had no idea of what the scale was going to be. So I had a few stocks where I just had a single buy trade and was holding them, or I had a buy trade and I sold them all out. And so initially, I thought, well, I'll just build a tool that helps solve my problem and and see how we go. So I did that. It was all looking good. I had a few colleagues at work who were also investing. So I asked them to come in and, and test it out. And they had some good feedback. And one of them was like, oh, I trade in crypto. Can it do crypto? So I added that in. And um, other people just had ideas on, oh, could it have this chart and do this thing? And so I just slowly kind of piece by piece started building it. And then I got to a point where I was like, well, maybe I'll make a post on Reddit and see what people in, I think it was Oz Finance or something at the time, see what they think. So I posted a link, and it just absolutely got torn (laughs) apart. People just, they were like, I used it. Straight away, somebody was like, it doesn't handle corporate actions. This tool's useless to me. And I was like, of course, it doesn't handle splits or consolidations or anything like that. Somebody else was like, oh, it doesn't have tax reporting, so I would never use it. And I got a lot of this kind of, it was aggressively negative feedback, (laughs) but... I you, I wasn't discouraged. I took that as, well, I can build those things. And I, later that day, supported corporate actions and responded to that guy said, look, I've added splits and consolidations now. And so I didn't get a lot of traction from that. But that was a really good um, exposure to the outside world out of my little investing bubble, where I knew a couple of people who were all really beginners at, at that point in time. And so. It was only until I started getting real customers in who it was still a free plan at that point, getting their feedback and finding out what they need was really the big turning point to um, make me decide, is this something I want to do or is this too hard and just just bail on it?
0: How, How did you get the customer feedback? I guess is the first part of that question. The second part is, how do you know what feedback is worthwhile incorporating and what's not?
1: Yeah, that's, that is a really good question. And initially, and it's still there today, is on every single page of the product, I've added a box down the bottom. And it used to just be a, a text box. And it would say, any feedback or issues or questions you have, just put it in here. So it's a really low um, friction way for somebody. They could just click it, type it, hit the button. And that was an awesome way of getting customer feedback. And I've still got a version of that on on most pages on the website today.
0: It says, how can we make this page better for you? Let us know. And I've got it open here in front of me.
1: Yeah. And now when you click that button, a a fancy widget thing appears, and you can lodge Mm. a, a support request or a feedback request and that kind of thing. But how I did it in the early days was purely just stuff, how many people kept bothering me for the same idea. And there was a lot of ideas that I only heard once and they kind of just disappeared. But then there were other ideas where it was like tax reporting, tax reporting, tax reporting. And it was like, okay, I didn't want to build tax reporting, but I will build tax reporting <laughs> because that seems to be what customers want. So that was how I kind of did it in the early days, whereas now I use a product that um people can lodge a feature request and other people can upvote it or downvote it. So it really is a, is a nice way of seeing what things are in demand and, and what features are just a, a one person kind of feature.
0: Yeah, I can see that. It's got like someone can lodge a feature request or like feedback and then other people can just hit the button and press upvote. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. it allows you to yeah. surface the feedback that's good. Because obviously when you start a business, everyone's like, that like your family and friends are always giving you like, you should do this, you should do that. Why don't you do this? Absolutely. And you're like, yeah, that's great if you want that, but I've got to deal with thousands of customers. Um, so you got to know what's worth listening to and what's not. And I was chatting to a CEO today, actually, and he was saying, like, you can look at all these business ideas and all these models and theories. And oftentimes, and he'd been in the industry for like 30 years, and he was like, Oftentimes you think you know what's going to work and what's not, and you just don't. You can only say, yeah. you know, it could work or it might not work. You know, you never know for certain. So I guess you just have to go, at a point you have to go on instinct, I guess.
1: Yeah, and there's definitely a lot of a lot of gut instinct to it. I try to validate things as much as possible with data, and there's a, a variety of tools you can do that, especially in, in software. Um, but some things you just can't. You just can't validate with data. You can do surveys, but then there creeps in like, did you bias the survey by like are they only saying they want it because you kind of worded it the wrong way and they yeah. didn't understand what you're asking? And there's a lot, it's really tricky, but some of um, some of the most successful features are built in the vector were validated prior to building it. So that was getting a feature request. And then I would go to kind of people who I knew were quite engaged with the Vexer and ask them what they thought before I built anything. Because in the early days, there were a few feature requests I went away and built, and it was a few weeks' worth of work. And then I released it, and then it's like no one cares. No one even clicked the link to even <laughs> see the feature. So it was like, how can I avoid that more in the future? And that's why I try and validate everything now prior to building it or at least building the bare minimum I have to so that I can see the people like clicking on this thing yes I'll expand it out a bit more
0: so it's kind of like I imagine like a bakery or something like this they know who their regulars are and they get feedback from different customers and they will ask those customers as they come in this is what we're thinking about making some sort of pastry or something would that be interesting to you and they just keep kind of using that that dedicated fan base, those thousand true fans, just to be like, hey, what about this? Hey, what about this?
1: And it's interesting because even that approach often
0: doesn't work too
1: because those people, and they like the idea. It sounds great in principle. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we'd love that feature. But then when they get their hands on it, it's like, oh, yeah, I wouldn't actually use it. And you've just <laughs> wasted all your time building that out. And that's really tricky as well. Because, um, and it happens with yourself, even when you're trying not to do it, you're like, oh, "I'd absolutely use that feature." And I've done this with the vectors. I build the feature, and then I, and then I never use it. And it's like, <laughs> how did I not figure that out in my own head? I was building it. I thought I'd use it, but at the end of the day, it just wasn't practical to use, or wasn't useful. And so it gets really tricky. But some of the some of these things you just have to try, and and you quickly find out whether it's good or not. And that's Mm. where that MVP model comes in. You build a minimum viable product or that minimum viable feature and just see, is it useful? And then expand from there. Mm. It saves a lot of time.
0: Mm. Um, For folks who don't know, maybe if they're beginner investors or you're a bit more advanced and you don't know this, one of the most, probably the most revealing thing you can ever do in investing is actually track your own performance um Mm. a lot of people don't like to see it and the financial profession i would say as a whole does not like to tell you um, because their returns aren't always that good some some of us have to report performance like people that manage money and so on and so forth but others do not and um the reason is that you can plug your your information i've actually got it open here um i might actually just bring it up for anyone that's watching this video as opposed to just listening but i'm just sharing my screen for those that are listening um and you can see here the portfolio performance of this hypothetical portfolio that i've added i put some etfs in there and you can see the the growth the capital gain and the income and also currency this is only an asx portfolio so it's only got that but um yeah. a lot of people when they think about investing one of the things that they forget to do is track their portfolio because it is kind of revealing and you have it's kind of like the cold hard truth of like this is how good I am. Um, and the reality Absolutely. is investing is bloody hard, like managing your own money. And so the beautiful thing about investing, though, once you come to that realization is you can be like, well, instead of spending 10 or 20 hours a week looking at stocks, I can just put it all in an index fund or an ETF portfolio or let someone else do it for me, uh, track it with Nivexa, and then just spend the rest of the time doing the other stuff, reading the news, going for a walk, going to the beach. Yeah. Um, and uh, I know that's what Jason, who we caught up this morning with, is passionate about too, is like showing people like, you need to track your portfolio because you need to know if you're good at it, first of all. And then second of all, you have to do it for tax anyway. So
1: yes.
0: <laughs> so you might as well do it. And that's why it's always surprised me that there's only like now, thanks to you, there's only two providers in the country that do this at least for individual investors like me um which is so surprising that it's taken this long um but i'm glad there's competition in the system and you're doing that um my next question was going to be like a lot of people that listen to our business podcast and even me right like, like i get this wrong all the time is like how do you price something like if you're a I chat to Monique, our producer, about this quite a bit because she does gigs and stuff on the side. I don't think you've met Monique, but Monique does all our videography and she works for Rask full-time, but then she's basically got like, if Rask is a 9 to 5, she's basically got like a 9 to 12 at night as well, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is like she does photography for gigs, events, and that sort of stuff, and she does a lot of it. But it's all freelance. It's all like in the creative industry. So it's basically like you put a price out there, see if someone likes it, see if they don't, you just, mm. you kind of just like throw it out there and see if someone bites, right? Um, but you have talked about this thing to me in the past about actually being scientific with how you set prices for your business or if you're a contractor for yourself. Yeah. How, how do, what is that process? Like, how do you actually do that?
1: Yeah. So I love this topic because, like, like most people before I learned how to do this, I was just guessing. I was just, Looking at what my competitor was charging, and just you know, charging a bit less than that, or just kind of gut feel what I might pay for it, and that kind of thing. Mm. And you end up leaving a lot of money on the table, and also annoying a lot of people. You you might put out a price that's way too expensive compared to what people perceive your product to be worth, and then no one wins out of that. So I learned about this thing called the the Van Westendorp price sensitivity measure. And it's this really simple survey you do, which you ask people or you ask the customers that you have. And it's these four questions. And the first question is, at what price is this product so expensive that you would, it's way out of the question of buying. And then at what price would this product be that's so cheap, you would question the quality of the product. And then at what at what price is this product expensive, but not out of the question, and you would still consider buying it. And at what price is this product, um, would you consider a bargain, like you're getting great value for money. And essentially you survey as many people as you can in your target customer audience, these four questions. And when you get the results, you do a bit of uh, Excel magic, And you plot this chart, which has these four lines. So there's two of them go from top left to bottom right, and the other two are from um, bottom left to top right. And in the middle, they form this diamond shape. And that diamond shape is the sweet spot of your price. So that's where all of the lines intersect, and particularly the one where people consider it um, like good value for money like the too cheap but not questioning the quality, and the it's expensive but um, still within the budget, that's kind of the sweet spot for your price. But better yet, so we did this at Novexa and we surveyed um, like a 1,000 people. We got all the responses. And the key part was within the survey, we had some other questions as well. So it was like, how much money do you have invested? How many portfolios do you have? And you can then segment the results and say, well, people with a million dollars or more invested, what is their pricing sweet spot? Mm-hmm. And often you'll find, oh, they're much, they're happier to pay much more than somebody with under twenty thousand dollars invested. Their pricing sweet spot is much lower. So that kind of gives you, if you're like a subscription service like us, and you have different plans for different types of investors you can now go, well, we know what to price our, our beginner plan, and we know what to price our expert plan. But where this survey gets even better is you, you also do a question using a max diff analysis, which, for if you don't know what that is, it's a question where you get your top five features, and you ask the, the person doing the survey, out of these five features, which is the most important feature to you? And they can only choose one. Then the next question, exact same five features, but it's which one of these is the least important to you? So what that does is it really forces a person to say, well, the value I'm getting from your product is that feature. And the thing I just don't care about at all, like if you didn't have it, it wouldn't matter, is that feature. And that question alone is quite revealing for businesses because the thing you thought was really cool or really popular, oh, it turns out everyone said that was the least important thing Mm -hmm. and you could basically not have that. But what it does and what I was able to do with Novexa is you can now segment the survey results. So everyone who said feature A was most important, their pricing sweet spot might have been $10 a month. But then everyone who said Feature B was the most important, their pricing sweet spot's $30 a month. So like, hang on a second, we should be promoting the hell out of Feature B and targeting customers who want Feature B and less worrying about people who want Feature A. And combined, so you have the Van Westendorp combined with these segmenting questions, you can really start slicing and dicing what your plan structure should look like, what features should be in each plan. And you can really find out, wow, people who like that feature are willing to pay a lot of money for it. Whereas this feature we thought was really important, people only were happy to pay like $5 a month for that. Mm. So it gives you a lot of clarity, not only on your pricing, but what features are most important. And that can have a huge impact through to who your ideal customer is, who you're targeting, what your messaging is, what your landing page on your website looks like, everything can be affected by the survey. So when I did the survey and crunched the numbers and got these results, put put it into action and was gonna release the pricing update, I'd never been more confident about releasing a price increase than I've ever been before. And I knew that when a customer came and looked at my pricing page, it was as if I'd read their mind and put the price on the page that they were like, oh, that's what I thought it was going to cost. And so now you are got to win-win Their Expectations are met. They're paying you the price they feel is best value. You're getting the most value out of the product. It's a win-win-win for, for everyone involved. So I've, I highly recommend, and, and this works for any product. And a question I often get when I tell people is, well, what if I don't have any customers, so you must have to have customers first. And you don't, and there's services like SurveyMonkey that you can pay them money and say, I want like a thousand respondents, I want them to all be CEOs of marketing companies or whatever, and they go out and find that audience for you and and we'll get them to do your survey and then you just pay per respondent. So before you've even started a business, And this is one of the things I wish I did before I even started Novexa was I could have surveyed a 1,000 investors in Australia, found out A, what features were most important, and B, what they would have paid for them. And then straight away, there's my roadmap of the product I should have built, and I could have cut out all the clutter and all the things that no one cared about. And then when I went to market, it would have been the product people wanted, the price they wanted to pay for it. And, you, and you're away laughing. So it it takes a bit of work. It took me, I mean, I, I researched how to do this for maybe a month, and then it was about a week of putting a survey together, and then maybe another week of collecting respondents and crunching the numbers. And it was, it was like the most ROI I've gotten out of any business activity that I've done so far. So that's something that, I'll do again and again and again. And it's even if we go to change our prices for Novexa, it's something I would do again because the impact of your brand will come into it. Maybe when I did it, we surveyed um, the wrong type of customer or we surveyed people when they had a lower perception of the Novexa brand, whereas now it's like more people might know about it. Maybe we're surveying a better customer segment and all kinds of things. So you can really just keep rolling it out year after year to make sure that your your pricing's on point. So, Hmm. yeah, it's it's really cool. I really like it.
0: That is really cool. That's like a wonderful insight. And like you said, any business can do it. You Hmm. might have certain advantages as a software business, but the principles and the idea of finding that sweet spot for pricing exists because you could do it like – even if you were, let's go back to the bakery. Don't know why I'm using that example today, but let's say we're running a bakery. I don't know what we'd call it. But, like, you could just have a Google form. You could be like, hey, we'd love your feedback, you know, if you could take a minute just to help us out with these four questions or five questions or segment and whatever. Um, you could do that. Um oh, absolutely. And-, and and it would be a great one
1: because it's like, say you're selling pies at your bakery. It's like you've got pastry. You've got the filling inside it. You've got the, the packaging. Maybe it's... Um, eco-friendly packaging or not and those are there are some of your features in your max diff analysis and let's say like, oh, it turns out everyone who wants eco-friendly packaging is happy to pay like 10 bucks for your pie whereas people mm. only care about the pastry only want to pay 3 bucks for the pie so mm. you're like all right we're we're now an eco-friendly bakery that prioritizes eco-friendly packaging and that's the customer segment we're targeting so it's like you've just priced your pie and change your business positioning and messaging, and should result in in more revenue at the end of the day. So it's, um, yeah, it's a good one.
0: Um, So this morning when we're catching up, it's only the second time we've caught up in person. I learned that you're not just building a vexa. We don't have to talk about that other business right now, but what I also realized is like, you have a hectic schedule. so. So, not only are you trying to prioritize building avexxa, and we'll come back to that in a sec, but um you're about to have your third child, if I'm not mistaken.
1: That's right. Ha-
0: what does your day look like? Yeah,
1: so so outside of a business and family, i'm I'm big into the gym. So I've been going to the gym now for for fifteen years, and right. so I get up at five thirty. In the morning, I do some work for half an hour, and then I go to the gym for an hour. Back at home by kind of seven thirty, which is fortunately when the kids are waking up and my wife's up. So we do breakfast and all that stuff. We get to hang out with the kids, and then from about eight till till four, it's I'm in my in my office working on the Vexa, working on my other business or whatever business things that I've I've got on my plate on the day and that's um it's it's pretty full-on I don't kind of leave the office much and it's get a lot of stuff done and then straight after that it's um hanging out with the kids and cooking dinner and hanging out with my wife and then often I'm back at work at night as well because my co-founder at Novexa he's over in Berlin so the best time to talk to him is kind of uh, 8 p.m. at night. So kids back in bed, working through the night and then go to bed about 10 o'clock and then and do it all again the next day. So I've been doing that kind of schedule now for um, about five years. And people have often told me like, oh, you're going to burn out. You need to stop. But for whatever reason, I haven't so far. Um, there's definitely been moments where I've been kind of psychologically not destroyed but (laughs) depleted and which you could kind of say is burnout, but it doesn't last very long. And it and it because I'm so passionate about building businesses and working on businesses, it only takes like the hint of something going well. And it's just reset me. I'm good to go. And then off I go for another few months before before there's any wobbles in that. So that's kind of my schedule I, I wouldn't recommend it for everyone but um, some <laughs> if, if you like building businesses and and getting the most out of everyday you can like that's it's just what you have to do really
0: i reckon like most software engineers i know if they saw the amount that you put out like as such a small team yep they would be like blown away by how quickly you can turn around feature requests and push new features and ideas out to the users. Like, I actually don't know how you do it.
1: Well, it's been an interesting journey in my um, software development career because before I went out on my own, I was working as a consultant. So I was at a lot of big Australian companies like uh, NAB and uh, MLC Life Insurance and just, just all over the place. And during that time, I really... As a software developer, I had no concept of how these businesses work. And this is the case in most places I go uh, have worked. As you go in there, these feature requests appear out of the sky, and you build these things. And you have no idea if it makes the business money, no idea if anyone uses that feature, no idea if that was the best feature ever, and you made the, the business like $20 million that year. And so all I had to focus on was my code. And I tried to be the best I could at it. I was really into being like a a code craftsman, as it were, doing all of my um, crazy design patterns and running um, communities of practice around the the languages and stuff I worked in. But since going out on my own, and my my past self would be really annoyed at me on how I work (laughs) today, but I've realized that a lot of that stuff isn't actually important. And when you're making a business, what's important is that, will this piece of work I'm doing translate into revenue for the business? And that's kind of how I view everything, especially the code. So where there's things in the past, I would have spent an extra few hours kind of gold plating something to make sure it was, it looked really awesome. It was nice and clean. It was followed all the latest practices. I learned that I was wasting a lot of time doing that, especially like we talked about earlier, building features that no one even used. Mm. So now it was my, my model is not writing kind of crap code, but it's like getting code as good as it can be the first time so that I don't need to come back and work on it. So there's a fine line that you kind of learn like where it's terrible code and it ends up causing you a lot of work down the road. And then there's code that's too good and you just wasted time. So I'm really trying to get on that line all the time. And that's what allows me to build features really quick, but that also work really well. But I have cut out a lot of the clutter that I used to think was really important. And that's only because now I do know if I release this feature, how much revenue it brings into the business. And when you have that full picture of what you're doing, completely changes how you think about every little activity and not just in code, just everything. Like, should I be posting on social media today? Is that going to generate me any revenue? Probably not, whereas this feature will, so I'm going to do that. So you can really prioritise the entire day around what's going to give you business success and what things are not going to move the needle at all. And you can just get rid of those things.
0: I was going to ask you that question, actually, is like, how do you benchmark yourself like how do you measure what you're doing um and how has that changed over time so like in the early days what when you posted on reddit obviously you were just like getting feedback but like now a few years in is it like monthly revenue figures monthly paying users as well is it profit is it what like what is it
1: yeah i think at the moment it's the key metrics we're looking at is this number of new users mm-hmm. and that often is a, it's a direct correlation to monthly recurring revenue or MRR. So that's the big drivers at the moment is just to get those numbers up, obviously. What people don't realise about a portfolio tracker is it's extremely expensive to run. Um, I didn't even know that when I first started building hmm. it. Um, you've got all these data feeds that just cost thousands of dollars. And it's fine now that we have some customers that cover those bills. But in the early days, I was forking out thousands of dollars every month out of my own money, just to make sure I had data feeds where I hoped people would find value for the product and subscribe. And it was really tricky at the start. And I can see why a lot of people who start these kind of projects fail early because the costs just just skyrocket really quickly and it's hard to um, it's hard to kind of keep them under control where you're like oh you know if we get a hundred more people then we'll add this it's like no you have to add that thing now otherwise you're not going to get those a hundred more people hmm. so the costs were really um, was something that really took me by surprise hmm. when starting this business
0: um- <clears throat> So you've got. So we talked about pricing. We talked about like the costs of running the business. How big is the business today?
1: In terms of, how like, like,
0: like say users. So we've got
1: um, about ten thousand registered users at the moment, and as you alluded to at the start of the call, we made a, a big change to our business today, in that we removed our free plan. So historically, we've had. Uh, three paid plans and a free plan. The free plan is kind of a more limited plan designed for beginner investors tracking less than um, 10, 10 holdings. But over the last, and I've been thinking about this for quite a while, over the last year, it's really become evident with that many people using the product that there's been a big load on support. And because we're a small team, there's only two of us in the business at the moment. Um, That's a lot of time. And as I was just saying, you have to view everything through the lens of what's going to drive business success. And unfortunately, spending a lot of time helping non-paying users um, was not going to deliver business success. And the other part of it was all of the free people using the service were dragging down the quality of the service for the paying customers, which we're not um, the most expensive. A tracker in the market, but we're definitely not super cheap either. So for the people who are paying their hard-earned money for our product, I want to deliver the best quality service that we can. And that's with speed of the product, which is what the uh, free accounts were impacting on. And, and also my response time and support. So I still like to do support myself rather than outsource that because I've built up such a good relationship with so many different people now. Don't know what any of them look like, and I've never met them in person. <laughs> but when their names come up, I'm like, oh, I know that guy. Like I'm going to help him out because he's been instrumental in helping us with features in the past. So I really want to keep doing support and to do to make these decisions. We've had to to cut the free plan. So see, there, there's been a bit of fun conversation on Reddit today about that. Oh, um, really? But overall positive, I think most people realize that at the end of the day, it's a business. And we can't, like if you're using us for free, I'm essentially doing you a favor. I'm paying (laughs) for you to use the product. And it's kind of a bit of a backwards relationship when it's so expensive to run a product like Novexa, we really need to prioritize the people who support us by paying. So, yeah, it's such
0: such a big move because a lot of people that like run businesses that listen to this or whatever, they probably have customers that they provide a service for and they're thinking, it really doesn't make sense for me to have this. And I'm so worried about the backlash and um, I'm worried about the effect it could have on my business, not just today, but longer term and so on and so forth. How did you weigh up that that was? And even I said to you this morning, I'm like, I don't know, man, I don't know if that's a good idea. Um, And then I got the email on the way home from coffee. And I was like, well, oh, that probably makes sense. But like, how did you like like frame that decision? Like, not how did you like put the pieces together, and be like, that is the right decision for me?
1: I think it came down to something very simple. And it was what I want to achieve with the business is to make it obviously a viable business that it pays for itself and generates. A profit to pay myself and, and the people who work for it. And if I view it from that lens and work backwards, it's like the people who are using it for free are not customers of Novexa, they're just users of Novexa. And because they're not paying any money, it's just a, a kind of a drag on the whole business at the expense of the people who are paying us money. So it's really a business decision in those terms. but. It's been a good year or so of, of thinking about this. It wasn't like I woke <laughs> up yesterday and was like, ah, we're getting rid of the free plan. Um, I weighed up a lot of those things as well. And I was worried, like, what would the backlash be? Um, is it going to hurt the business? But at the end of the day, when I looked at the data, and I like to be data-driven on these things, is that most people on the free accounts never progress to, to being a paying customer because they either never bought enough um, they didn't invest in enough things to go above the, the 10 limit. Or they were just abusing the system and having multiple accounts to track things. It'd be a pretty annoying way to do it, but people were doing that. Or people mm-hmm. would just had accounts for various different reasons. Um, so it, from a business point of view, again, those people were never going to pay. And it just didn't make sense for our business. And I think in hindsight, I should have started the product like this without a free plan. So we could really nail what things are important to the customer, build the right product, get the right pricing, and then think about, well, can we expand the business with a free plan? So it's likely something that I'll come back to in years to come and offer a a better free plan. But just didn't have the time or resources to focus on making a good product for free people for a start. It was just like a, oh, yeah, we'll make a free plan and hope for the best, but it wasn't delivering a great experience for them. Wasn't delivering a great experience for the paying customers. It just wasn't good for for anyone. So it just had to go. And um, the thing is we can always put it back, right? So yeah. if, if it doesn't work over the next few months, then then we'll bring it back. But um, I think it'll just really help focus focus our mission on what we're doing, signal to the market that we're here to be a successful product and be around for the long-term, because a big concern people have is, if you're a long-term investor, like I'm, I'm 35, I'm gonna be investing for the next like 40, 50 years. So if I'm signing up to a tracker, I wanna know that it's gonna be around for a good few decades yet because i don't want to add on all my data and have everything in there and then it just shuts down in a year's time and so to provide that security for customers the business has to be solid it has to be making a good amount of revenue so it can pay all the bills and, and that's what it comes down to
0: yeah i always say this but like to 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 finish first you must first finish um yeah and it's something that i reflect on for us a bit too it's like we do so much for free and people tell me this they're like it's too free and now um, mm. now that i know that what did you call it? the van Swent van westendorp i'll van send Swint. you some links yeah cool um i'll pop them in the show notes for folks as well because i find it extremely valuable um like getting that right and knowing that that's your customer gives you the conviction to be like i don't have to do this for free <laughs> you know i don't have to do cheap if there's the bakery across the road selling those pies for three bucks, I don't have to be that guy because the people that come here they buy the pies for the eco friendliness of this pie. I didn't hear make so eco friendly, but like <laughs> there'll, there'll be a way. and yeah. um, it it, it's, it it kind of, it makes sense. So I've got like kind of one final question. It's like you and I we've spoken a bit, um, and we're gonna start using the vex at Rask for like basically everything that we do. Uh, in terms of like reporting to our members and people who join us and pay for a subscription and see how I'm investing like they're going to see that through Navexa but on the RASC website which is super cool and people yep. can join up um, for a slight discount um, through us but um, how did you market the business in the early days so once you're like okay so you didn't do that you know pricing model then but like how did you like what strategies did you use like you're an all online business you got an app was it like obviously word of mouth in the very early days but like did you have a marketing budget did you raise capital did you buy facebook ads did you do google like just tell us
1: yeah so the uh, another business i was running at the time um was heavily based on facebook and google ads so i had experience through that business managing like an 100K monthly budget across Google and Facebook. So I got pretty good at the paid ad side of things. So with Novexa, we raised a bit of money from uh, two private investors, which gave us a bit of budget. That allowed me to hire another dev uh, for about a year and a half. So that kind of sped things up even more, which was good. But a lot of that budget went into paid ads as well. So I ran Facebook and Google ads for most of 2021, I think it was. And that got a lot of people, but surprisingly was not as easy as my other business um, to make profitable. So I never really, I wouldn't say they're a successful channel for Novexa yet. They definitely have worked somewhat, but it's still, it's very expensive these days running those ads. But that's how we got a lot of the initial traction Um, we just brute forced it into the market with with paid ads but that only lasts so long and we've kind of been weaning ourselves off paid ads over the last year and really building or trying to build that organic uh, marketing strategy through word of mouth but what's really difficult is in australia is most people don't like talking about their Finances or investments. No. So it's not something where you're like, oh, hey, I'm using this awesome product to manage my investment. Or well, they you don't want like to talk
0: about tax. You're like, that's, that's something right. you bring up. You're like, yeah, I reported my tax accurately this year. Like, so exactly. great. Here, t- I'll tell you about it.
1: <laughs> exactly. So it's really tricky to get that word of mouth. And our main competitor in the market has been around so long that they have a lot of word of mouth going online. Um, so it's it's quite tricky to compete with that, but over the last couple of months, it's really been about focusing in on who our ideal customer is, and it's one of those things that people always tell you. They're like, oh, yeah, identify the audience and then market where they're at, and you're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great, but it's also something most people never actually do or do properly, and it's really been the last few months where I'm like. Now I'm sick of this kind of throw out a wide net approach and hope for the best. And it's really finding who our best customers are. And we're going to build the product for those people. So we're going to call them out in our ads. We're going to talk to those people on our landing page. When they use the product, it's going to have the features that they need. And that's the marketing strategy at the moment is really nail it for those people. And then those people will help help spread the word rather than just being like, oh, we're for every investor. And then we're really for no investor because someone comes in they're like, oh, well, I've got $10 million invested. I don't think this is looks like the product for me. And then you've got someone, I've only got 10 grand invested. I don't think this is the product for me. And it's, we're not speaking to any of those people effectively. Mm. Whereas choosing one of those niches and then going after that, I want our target customer to land on the page Read the headline and go. Oh, this is this is for me. That's who I am, and then we have a much better flow. So, yeah, kind of a a broad answer to your question. But um,
0: well, can so we talk about customer avatars on the business podcast every now and again. So yeah, but like you're in like the sweet spot for our the entire rest network, right? Because we've got like two hundred thousand investors of all different stripes. Some in that. 80s, maybe even their 90s, some people in their teens, some kids, I'll call them like 13, 14, come to our events and have started investing, right? Crazy stuff. That's future. Awesome. Future Warren Buffett's, right? Um, yep. <clears throat> so who is your customer avatar? Like who is your customer profile? Like or how much money do they have? Why should they use the platform,
1: etc.? So the customer segment that we, we work really well for is people who have multiple portfolios, so they're managing like their own and maybe their partners or their own an SMSF or a company or a trust or their kids' portfolios, or there's a whole bunch of permutations in there. But the key is that when you only have a handful of stocks, you can track that pretty well in a spreadsheet by yourself, especially if you're a long-term investor and you have just have a single buy trade, you can chuck it in there. super easy calculation. So we don't really, while there's still value in using Novexa for those people, there's not the big value jump from going from your spreadsheet to Navexa in those circumstances. Whereas when you have multiple entities and you're wanting to A, view your performance over all of that, or like you need to check, how's my SMSF going? Do I need to make changes? I need to report on tax for that, for compliance. And now I'm jumping back to my personal one. I've done a bunch of trades here. I need to do some tax optimization. That's when Novexa provides you a lot of value because it's way too hardcore to be doing in a spreadsheet, especially if you don't know how to use Excel well. And that's the customer who, when they use Novexa, it's like, not only do we we save them money at tax time, so the subscription basically is, is paid for in return on investment, it's just the complexity of Hundreds of stocks across different entities at a moment's notice. You can bring it up. That's how I'm performing. Awesome. I know. I know what I'm doing. So it gives you that clarity and confidence over over a crazy, complex scenario.
0: I always think about that. Like the admin of investing is actually really annoying. Um, yeah. With like ETFs, you know, and then you got share registries where you have to update your tax file number. Make sure they got your bank account details. Set your email. Like just goes on and on and on and on and on and then to have like the tax reporting and then try and find out your actual performance and your franking credits and your currency it's just like oh um and this is one of the areas that you can actually basically automate with novexo which is super cool um and so just to be crystal clear for people who don't get it so like you would like someone say like i sign up i'm a new investor to my brokerage account i'm using like Comsec, Perla, sponsor of our finance podcast, or like insert brokerage account, Yeah. then sometimes Nivexa can like integrate with that broker or you can set up like auto forwarding of like the emails that you receive to go straight to Nivexa so then you guys can kind of read that. Is that how it works?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So we've got a direct integration with Perla. So if you're a Perla customer, you can just link your account and all the trades get pushed through automatically. With other brokers like uh, Comsec, um, we have the contract note uh, importer. So every time you execute a trade, they send you an email with a PDF attached called a contract note. So if you forward that to a special Nivexa email address, our system reads that and loads it into your account. It happens pretty much in in real time. So you can either provide that email address directly in your Comsec account, and they send it straight to us, or you can set up a forwarding rule in your inbox. But unfortunately, the brokers in Australia are really behind the times uh, with technology. So that's why Pearl is really cool, because they're a new broker built on new technology, and we've been able to do these integrations. But the likes of Comsec and stuff are very, there's big walls up there. They don't want their their data Mm. coming out of there. So, But the contract note option is really good. And we also support CSV import for most of the brokers too. So, um, if you're a NAP trade, you can export that CSV file, and we've got an importer that knows exactly how to read their file format. And it's really easy to get your historical data in as
0: well. So once you've done it once, you're <coughs> you're up and running, and it's super easy to maintain. Cool.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Cool. Um, maybe I'll just end with one question then. So you're at like 10,000 users at the moment. Where do you think your business could be in like two or three years? Like, if you just picked a number, I don't know if you like, I'm not the type of person that's like, I want X percent every year for them. You know, I just think that's kind of like hard to predict, but maybe it's easier for you. Um, Where do you think you could be in two or three years?
1: I mean, I think it's just as hard to predict with this, but um, where I'd like to be in two or three years. It's a more global business, so I think there's investors that we can definitely be helping in Europe and America. And I think probably somewhere around the um, 100,000 would be pretty realistic over the next couple of years. So it'd be like 10 times where we're at now. But I think with the um, the right business model, making a product that's really good, I think we can get that word of mouth going. And I know in other countries, they do talk about finance a bit more uh open and free so i think um yeah that's kind of where we're heading
0: oh cool mate well i I wish you all the best and um for anyone that wants to get on the journey with nivexa and navar here you can do that through uh, the link that will be available below the video or in your podcast player or across any of our websites one of the cool things that you and i've been working on is like through our memberships people will be able to track our membership portfolios Uh, through Nevexa, basically. Like you can actually see the transactions and the portfolios and that sort of stuff, which is really cool. So um, people will be immersed in it anyway. Um, But check out Nevexa; You can support uh, Navar and his team to continue building awesome tools for investors and for people everywhere. And um, I'm excited to see what the future brings, mate. So thanks for taking some time to join me. Awesome. No, thanks. It was great to be on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Business Podcast. I think this series is best served with my free business course on RASC education. My free course includes all of my notes, templates, employment guides, legal documents, marketing strategies, software recommendation, and ideas for starting and running a small business. Finally, if this podcast or the course helps you, I only ask that you please help me by sharing it with one friend, colleague, or family member who runs a business. Thanks for listening.